0: Well, good morning, church. You want to open with me to the book of Nehemiah. Here's a big question I want us to ask as a church. What's next? Where do we go from here? As we move forward, Nehemiah is going to help us lay a foundation for building momentum into this next chapter as a church. If anybody in scripture, there's a number of guys that were pretty determined. They were pretty committed. We could say that they were, they were all in. Turn to your neighbor and say all in. Uh, another word that we could say is resolved eyes locked on, toes pointed in the direction, nothing is going to deter, nothing is going to stop the mission from going forward. And we could say Nehemiah was a man. Once he was called by God, he was committed, he was resolved to God's mission. And do you believe that there are things that God wants to do in the world that are not happening right now and he's burdening your heart? He's placing on your heart for you to be the answer to the problem, for you to be the solution to the issue that's right in front of you instead of it's somebody else's thing and somebody else will get around to that and I don't have what it takes. What if today? What what if it's me? What if we could ask the question, what's next for me personally? What is God calling me to do? So a little bit of background. Nehemiah was not just a man of resolve. He was a man from birth given a name that he was going to live out. Nehemiah literally means God of Comfort. He's named after the attribute of comfort and care and concern from birth. He had a name and his calling would follow, but his name, God of comfort. He lived between 446 and 424 BC. Uh, I think up on the screen, you have a little bit of a timeline. This one might be a little bit easier to read, but still difficult, I'm sure. We have a whole lot going on throughout Old Testament history. Everybody ready for a 30-second Old Testament, Old Testament history lesson? Can you handle it? Can you handle it? Everybody say, I can handle it. All right, here we go. We got a dude named Moses, right? He wrote the first five books of the Bible, first five books known as the Torah uh, or the law, also known as the Pentateuch. Everybody say it with me, Pentateuch, penta meaning five, don't think, pentagram, right? Not good, Pentateuch, good. Okay. No bueno, bueno. All right. As we think about the five books, the first five books written by Moses. Now we're, we're entering into kind of the 1400s BC. We have the conquest where Joshua judges and Ruth were written. We have history of Moses dies before they get into the promised land. They enter in the conquest of Canaan. And then soon enough, we have David. David shows up on the scene. We have his story first and second Samuel. And as David lives his life, there are promises that David's throne will continue on, the Messiah will arrive through the lineage of of David. As we continue, we have a divided kingdom. When David was king, there was a united kingdom. Pretty soon you have Jeroboam taking uh, the Israelites to the north, 10 of the 12 tribes. You have uh, Rehoboam taking two of the tribes to the south and pretty soon you have Israel and Judea, two separate nations. We have a divided kingdom in first and second kings. Then you have the Assyrian exile. What's an exile? It's when uh, the enemy comes, kicks your butt, and takes everything away and takes you hostage, right? Not good. Not good. We have the Assyrians, which were a world power at the time. Assyria came in. Why did they come? Because God sent them to judge the nation of Israel for massive, continual, unrepentant sin. Assyria brings exile. Isaiah and Hosea have some things to say during that time for God's people to repent and return so that they could come back to their land. You have the Babylonian exile. Babylon, the next superpower, kicks butt, takes names, and they also come to Israel, dominate, and take everybody to Babylon, right? You have certain books there, Jeremiah and Daniel, uh, that is happening during the Babylonian exile. Then, pretty soon, as we're Inching closer in history to Jesus, we're still several hundred years out. We have the return back to the land. Okay, that's where we're at right now in Nehemiah. Okay, they are returning back to Israel after years and years and years of exile, after being taken captive, they're now coming home. And Nehemiah and Ezra are the two authors, two books that are usually joined together in this season that are speaking and calling God's people to now live a certain way now that they are home again. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah's a dude that is 800 miles away. He is in Assyria. He's minding his own business. He's living fat on the land, and he's under the king. And we're going to find out that he was doing just fine. He was doing just fine. He was wealthy. He was healthy. He had life as he knew it for years. He never went back to Israel And then a call came on his life. That's where we're at, all right? If you got it, everybody say, I got it. Okay, all right, all right. So if you want to be on mission with God, you must be alert to the call of God. And the call came to Nehemiah. And you must sense that things are not happening the way that God ultimately wants. There are things that need to be fixed that are broken in the world. Are you available? Are you ready that if God's call comes your way, you are listening and you have a heart of obedience to say, God, of course I will. Yes, yes, I will, I will do it. I'm not comfortable with it. It's going to demand so much from me, but I'm willing to say yes. That's what Nehemiah did. And here's the big word for the first part of our series, compassion. Because when the call of God came on Nehemiah's life, something rose up in Nehemiah. Compassion led the way. Him saying yes, God's call. Compassion. Compassion. The words of Nehemiah, do you see that? Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, which odds are was probably late, late fall, coming up soon. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, remember we just talked about that, they survived, they went back, and concerning Jerusalem, verse three, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem, it's broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. I don't say before, before accomplishment, right? Before endurance, before even getting started on mission, this is, this is it. You have to be moved with compassion. You have to hear the needs around you and your heart being compelled. Compassion is the spark that gets you going. And so Nehemiah hears the message of the terrible things that are happening. They return to Jerusalem. Guess what? There are no walls. There is no protection. And the people, they're so glad to be home. And now maybe many of them regret going back home because they're like, what are we going back to? Everything's destroyed. We're, we're vulnerable, right? To enemy attack. They know what it's like to be dominated by world powers. And they're like, it's going to happen again. There's no walls. There's no protection. We, we don't have anything in place to protect any kind of opposition. And the message goes out and you're talking 800 miles of traveling specifically to get to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah hears this. What could Nehemiah have done in that moment? He's like, not my problem. Not my problem. Uh, if you look around, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm a big deal around here. And uh, I know you got a mess going on over there, but it, what does that have to do with me? I chose to stay in Assyria. You guys chose to go back. Sucks to be you, right? Like, sorry, Nehemiah could have done that, right? Nehemiah could have heard the story of all that was happening back in Jerusalem. And he could have said, well, I'll call a guy right? Maybe I'll, I'll network a little bit and I'll send somebody and maybe they can help you. He, he could have done that. Turn to your neighbor and say, he could have done that. That could have happened. He could have done that. He could have uh, he, he said, why would you guys even want to waste your time doing all of this work and labor? Why don't you just stay here? Like, why don't you hang with me, right? Like, I'll, I'll get you a suite in the kingdom. Like, it's good. We can still worship the one true God and kind of just hang out. He could have done that. But instead, something started rising up in the heart of Nehemiah when he heard the problems, the issues that were facing his brothers and his sisters back in Jerusalem. He was moved with compassion. Compassion moved Nehemiah. Could we say compassion moves me as a believer, right? A drive should be my heart is filled with compassion for the needs around me. I must do something about it. The normal Christian life is marked not by hard-heartedness, not by turning a blind eye. The normal Christian life is one of scanning and looking and praying and asking and being ready whenever God calls to say, roll up your sleeves, I'm sending you in. And our response is, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. So number one, compassion. Ask questions with an attentive ear. Ask questions with an attentive ear. When you heard the these these guys come in his way immediately. Verse 2, what does it say? I asked. I asked. Every say, I asked. I asked. I, I asked questions. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. He listened, and as he listened, he was moved. God moves us on mission through compassion. Compassion moves us. And I, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I think we expect others to be compassionate, and we fail ourselves to display compassion for those in need. Have you, have you been there? Have there been times as you look back that people were asking for help, that people were reaching out? I'm, I'm just too busy. I don't know what to tell you. I just can't do anything. I, I just got so much going on, or I'm not an expert in that area. Maybe you can find somebody else. And for many of us, I think we have regrets about, I, I think God was, was calling me to be the answer to that, and I just I came up with an excuse, and I just busied myself. But I wonder if you've been on the opposite side, and I could tell you story after story. I won't bore you with lots of details, but after years in ministry of being overwhelmed and burdened and burnt out, reaching out to those that I looked up to, reaching out to men that I respected, thinking I, I want to walk through and process what what I'm facing, and, and they're wiser, and they've been through it, and and I just wonder if if I would have a, a father in the faith that could spend some time with me and just lean their ear in and be able to provide me with some perspective And I can tell you of all the times of sitting down with somebody and laying out my heart and them going, well, yep, that's what you signed up for. You're in ministry. I'll be praying for you. Compassion. Compassion goes a long way when you are desperate for answers, when you're desperate for hope and you're looking for someone to care enough to slow down and to listen, for someone to offer some kind of help and assistance in your greatest time of need. Story after story of me reaching out in times of financial crisis, in, in times of marriage crisis, and parenting issues, that reaching out to those that, that I know they've been there, they've done that, they're stronger than me, they're wiser than me, and every single time being stiff-armed with no time, no compassion, and if we can't find hope and help for those that are in leadership, those that are serving in ministry, where where are we supposed to look? What if we were a church that when people came to us, that we would say, I'm here for you and I'm listening and my ear is attentive to the needs that you have. My heart is filling up with compassion. I'm going to help. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to make time. That's powerful, right? Turn your neighbor and say that's powerful. It's powerful when when we can be filled with compassion we have god's heart of compassion we can provide the comfort not expecting somebody else but what if it's what if it's us and if you ask good questions you will never lack for friends those that are all alone those that are feeling lonely what if you were a person constantly asking questions seeking to grow in your compassion and to offer somebody an opportunity to display compassion i, I wrote down a few compassion questions, okay? If you're struggling with like, how do I even help people? How do I enter into somebody's situation, okay? So here's the 101 of how can I display compassion entering into someone's life? Here's a few questions. What what if you just spent some time this week and just ask people, what are you most concerned about? What are you concerned about these days? What's on your mind? What's on your heart? What are you concerned about? When's the last time you asked somebody, how have you been encouraged recently? Like, how is God encouraging you? Where where is God at work? Where, where are you actually seeing some great things happening that you need to dwell on the good because good is happening? Where are you encouraged? When's the last time that you just sat and listened to someone share testimonies of things that God is doing? Here we go. Number three, what about what relationship or situation is, is heavy, is overwhelming right now? When's the last time that you asked somebody, like, where, where are you feeling Burdened and is it a situation? Is it something about the future? Is it an individual? Is it a relationship? Is it a relative? How about number four? Can you share more about that? Man, we we need to be asking that every day. As soon as someone answers one of our questions, what if you, instead of going, oh, okay, okay, good, and then we move on, what if we actually stopped and said, I want to know more? Because what did Nehemiah do? He didn't just say, Oh, I assume I know what's going on in Jerusalem. I'm sure that. Uh, I got a good picture. Instead, he started asking questions. Share with me what the specifics are. Help me understand what's going on. I can't be a help if I don't know what the real problem is. How long has it been going on? What is the reality of the issues that the person is facing? You could ask this every day, all day long. Can I know more? Can you share more? What What else? What else? What else? And here it is. Number five, because We are a church that is seeking to serve one another, right? Everybody shake your head. We're called to serve one another. We're called to meet each other's needs. If we are a church that is seeking to serve one another, what question should we be asking every single day, every time we get together? Hopefully you're asking this question. How can I help? How can I help? How can I help? How can I help? Even if eight out of 10 times you're going to be met with, oh, there's nothing you can do guess what? There's one or two times where they go, actually, nobody has actually asked me for any kind of offering of help and nobody's volunteered to help. And you're the first person. That would be amazing. And I really hate asking for help because I am so guarded, so protected, so proud, if we're honest, right, that I cannot ask for help. And the one time that you're saying, no, I'm going to help you. I'm here and I'm going to serve you. Do you know what that does to that relationship? Do you know what that does to somebody that somebody actually offers help and follows through? How can I help? And here's, here's part of the help is I want to pray for you specifically. Maybe I don't know how to help. Maybe I can't help, but I can pray. How do I pray specifically? I'm trying to regularly, over the past year and a half, regularly not just say, hey, I'm praying for you. I have no idea what you're going through. I need to be asking, how can I pray for you specifically? What are you facing during this season? What are things that I don't know that I can know so that I can be praying? Everybody say that's helpful. There we go. Moving on, moving on. As we think about Nehemiah and him asking questions, getting information, here's what he's hearing. Trouble, shame, walls down. Trouble, shame, walls down. Nehemiah's response, I'm here. I'm moved with compassion. I'm on mission. And not all compassion is the same. Do you believe that? Compassion looks differently in different situations. In here, in this story, we have the problem is presented and we could say this, level one compassion, all right? Let's just look at a few levels. I don't know where you're at consistently, but compassion for problems may be where you start and it might be where you end, okay? You hear about a problem and you're like, I feel terrible about that. Maybe I could even help a little bit. There's great trouble. The walls are down. Nehemiah, do you, do you see the trouble? Yes, I do. There's a problem. I think I might have a solution. He could have stopped there. Level two, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Level two, as you go deeper in compassion, it's compassion not just for the problems, but for the people. For some of us, we, we are moved with compassion towards, you got a problem? I'll fix it. And then I'm done. And then if somebody asks again, you're like, I already already solved the problem this week. How much compassion do you think I have, right? I mean, like, I'm already exhausted. I saw the problem. I met the need that was there. And here's the scary part, that as believers, we can go through our whole lives and just say, here's a problem, and I'm moved with compassion to meet the problem, and I never see the person behind the problem because I'm so focused on just solving the problem that I don't actually see who's going through the problem. Have you been there? Have you been there? You miss the person by just trying to solve the problem check, right? I did my part. I did my part. But people need you to look and see and be moved with compassion for them personally, not just to take care of their problems. Do you believe that it goes even further than that? Nehemiah didn't just see the problem, he saw the people. He saw the people of God in trouble. He was moved to compassion, not just to solve the problem, but also to enter in and to be there for the people. Did he stay there? Do you believe there's a level three? There is a level three. Everybody say, oh my. Yeah, we're going deeper, we're going deeper, I know. Can you handle it? Can you handle it? Buckle up. Level three compassion, that it's not just seeing the problem, it's not just seeing the, the people that are going through the trouble, it's also, I see souls, I see eternity. I see the need of what's going on inside people. I don't just see that I can help them on the outside, on the surface. I can actually press in and get to know where people are hurting inside. Compassion for souls. Do you think that we need soul care in our day? I need soul care. I need soul care. I need somebody to care for what's happening inside of me, not just what they see on the outside. Now more than ever, we have opportunities as a church to press in, and to actually slow down and meet people where they're at, not just quickly solve the problem, not just on a surface level get to know people, but to actually sit with people and get to know what's going on deeply, historically with them. We have a number of people here, part of our family, that are exhausting themselves, spending hours on a regular basis, pouring their lives out to be able to not just quickly solve a problem and not just interact for a short period of time with people and, and be able to help them with what they're going through, but to be able to pause and to be able to drill down deep in an unhurried way and be able to care for the souls of those in our church and those in our community. Thank you. Thank you for those that are willing to be interrupted, to be inconvenienced again and again, and to go out of your way to spend hours on the phone, face-to-face, whatever it is, and to be able to care intentionally and deeply. For, For many of us, we are just scratching the surface of level one. And what if God's calling us a little deeper, a little deeper? Do you see them? Do you see the needs? Do you see the people? Do you know they're people? Do you know they're hurting? Do you know that they aren't just a problem to solve and quickly move on and get back to your life, but there are souls that Jesus laid down his life for? Do you see them the way he sees them? And if you do, you're going to spend your time differently. You're going to listen differently. Nehemiah had his his ear close to listen to what was going on. And he was willing to do the hard work of showing compassion and care for each of his brothers and to say, I'm willing to do something bigger than just listen to you. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go. Here we go. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words that, Jerusalem broken down, gates destroyed. This was his response. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days, for days. Everybody say compassion. That's compassion. For days, I continued fasting, praying before the God of heaven, and I said, "O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome, awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps his, keep His commandments." Verse six, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people, for the people, right? It's not just the problems. It's about the people, the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, Nehemiah did, which we, every say we, we have sinned against you. We have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Verse seven, we have acted very, very corruptly against you. We have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you command your servant, Moses. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Number two, compassion, right? Talking about compassion, confess sin with a broken heart. Confess sin with a broken heart. Do you see what's happening here? What is Nehemiah's response? Nehemiah's response is not just to fix the problem, He's moved with compassion at the heart level. What does he do? Inwardly, he's grieving. Inwardly, he's grieving. Outwardly, it says he wept. He was weeping and continuing to weep. Grief inside, weeping outside. What was next? Prayer rose up inside of him, and it wasn't just prayer. It says that he was moved towards fasting. So prayer started internally, and he said, this is so serious I need to commit a time of fasting outside. This is what was seen, a season of of fasting. And if we're really, really honest, some of us are doing okay at offering limited care, cautious care, but do you care enough to cry out to your limitless God? Do you pray? And do you not just pray about your own thing and your own needs and what's right in front of you, But are you so in tune with what's happening around you that it compels you to pray for those that you are burdened for and you're moved with compassion for? What did Nehemiah do? He grieved, he wept, he prayed, and he fasted. If you want to write this down, fasting. Okay, let's get a definition. Define your terms, right? Fasting, a denial of physical appetites to heighten your hunger for God. Fasting is a, a denial of physical appetites to heighten your hunger for God. And what if, what if over the next 40 days or the next weeks, you're to say, what is getting in the way of moving my heart towards compassion? What is, what is getting me distracted that my heart is not even in tune with what is breaking God's heart? For some of us, there are addictions that we are very aware of that we need to say, I'm done. This is a season not just to quit. It's a season of fasting and prayer. God set me free. For for some of us, it could be food. It could be skipping a meal. For others of us, it's no phone, no social media, no apps, no games. I am going to spend the time that I would usually be doing that and I'm going to get serious about listening to what's burdening God's heart and that he's going to burden mine and he's going to send me in on mission. And what if We have never before lived in a generation that is so lacking in compassion because we are so self-obsessed. We are so obsessed with my thing and my schedule and my desires and my wants. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What do I get out of it that we can't even feel for others? But what if fasting is a pathway to feel again, to be moved with compassion again, to actually see what's right in front of us that we would love instead of criticize, that we would be able to meet needs instead of making excuses? What if we would be a church that would take prayer seriously and that it would compel us to go when nobody else is willing to? Fasting forces me to focus on what God cares about most. It forces me to focus. God, what do you care about? What do you care about? There's an outward crisis in Nehemiah's life. It compelled him to take inward ownership and upward hope in a God that is their only hope and our only hope today. I I just want to make a note of this. How long did Nehemiah do this for? Was it like, man, the rest of the day, he just grieved and he wept and he prayed and he fasted. We recognize in the story of Nehemiah, this was, odds are, a three to four month, 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 three to four months of fasting, praying, and weeping to have God's heart and God's answers, God's wisdom for what part he played. Everybody say that's a long time. That's a really long time to 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 do nothing with, I need to solve the problem. I just need to get this. I, I got stuff to do and I'm busy. And, and if I'm going to be part of the solution, I like quick, quick, I like, I, I can help for a little bit. I got an hour here and maybe I can, maybe I can fit the trouble of Israel into my schedule. Maybe I can, be interrupted for an hour by a family member or coworker or somebody at church. I I got 30 minutes, okay? That's what I can give to you. Four months. God, what part do you want me to play? Fill my heart. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And I'm not going anywhere until I've confessed, until I've repented, until I've dealt with what's in the way is me. What's in the way is my heart of being part of the solution. A praying life will kill sin and a sinful life will kill prayer. A praying life will kill sin. A sinful life will kill prayer. What kind of prayers is God asking you to pray? I, I, would just, I would ask this. Over the next weeks, over the course of this series, what if there's just one thing, one thing that you would ask God, place on my heart, I'm praying for a breakthrough. I'm praying for, for one thing that I have. Maybe I used to pray about it and I gave up. And I didn't believe you could do it. For some of us, we're in the middle of a season right now We're like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know what the solution is. All I see is the problem. What if you would just pick one thing and you say, I'm going to consistently fast and pray and ask God for a breakthrough in this specific area with this specific thing. And God, I'm grabbing hold of you and I'm not going to let go until you answer, until I see you move. And I'm going to confess whatever's in the way in my life. I am going to get serious about my own sin. I am going to focus on how I need to be cleansed, how I need to get right with you, and that you would move and maybe use me to be part of the answer for the problem that I'm seeing. Man, Nehemiah's humble leadership here. Don't we want want leaders to be like this? Like humble, following God, seeking Him. I, I wrote this down. We want others to lead with character. We want others to be broken over the condition of God's people and the lost in our world. We want Leaders, we want others to live a life of prayer and courage. We want others to be eager to restore the broken. We want others to be willing to fight for what's right. We want others to be wise in their dealing with opposition. We want others to be relentless in pursuing God's goals. We want others to be unwavering in their faith for God's purposes. We want somebody else to do it. But what if God's saying, I want you to be this type of leader. I'm calling you to lead the way. Stop looking around and expecting others to lead like this. Start being the man, start being the woman of character that leads the way that others can follow. What example do we need in our church alone, in our community that leads like this? Is it, is it just Do we need just one person? Are we okay with just one or two people that are leading and living a lifestyle this way? I hope we're not content until we're a church where we're all in. All of us are all in living God's way. Burdened, moved with compassion, serious about prayer. Man, if you don't live this way and if you don't lead this way, could I just offer this? Could it be because you're living a life of unconfessed sin? You're living a life that you're not keeping short accounts with God. You're living a life where sin is in the way of any kind of freedom and any kind of breakthrough. And today could be the day. You don't want to live that way anymore. You don't want to live that way anymore. And so here's some uncommon confessions. If you're taking notes, I just want us to get really specific. Nehemiah poured out his heart for four months, confessed his own sin, confessed on behalf of God's people. For some of us, after 30 seconds of prayer, we're like, what else is there to pray about? Or squirrel. I mean, like we're just, we're gone, right? We're gone. So how is it that we could commit 30 minutes of prayer, an hour of prayer that we we could, I'm not getting off my knees until... I am praying through specific areas of my life. Well, this could be a a prime for the pump of your prayer life. Here we go. If you're taking notes, allow this to be helpful. Here's some uncommon confessions. Who's confessing like this? How about unforgiveness? God, forgive me for the bitterness and the hardness. Forgive me for keeping record of wrongs. Forgive me for pointing out everybody else's faults and flaws and errors and keeping such a uh, a strategic list of how everybody else has failed, but I have zero on my list of where I am at fault, where I have failed, and therefore I hold on to bitterness, harbored hurts, unforgiveness. What if over these next weeks, unforgiveness is an area that you're going to get low before the Lord and weep over? How dare I not forgive when I've been forgiven of so much? How about this? How about how about pet patterns? pet patterns. We have pet sins that instead of killing them, we put them on a leash and we walk them and we take care of them, right? And we feed them. For many of us, there are areas of sin patterns in our life that we're like, well, this is just normal. This is just who I am. I've always done this. I've always talked this way. I've always smoked this. I've always chewed this. I've always drank this. This is just what I do. I've always looked at this. Like what's wrong with this? It's just, it's just a little bit. What if we've done it so long that we're we're just so numb to sin in our lives. I know it's a bad habit, but what if we would start, I know it's sin and I'm gonna confess it and I'm gonna repent of it and I'm not gonna make excuses anymore. What if for many of us, we've been living a lifestyle where we're, we're so frustrated about friends and relatives of how they're living a certain way, but if we would sit down with them and we would ask them the question, why is it that you're just continuing on living a rebellious lifestyle? How many that are close to us would say, well, you do it?" How is this different than what you're doing? We're giving permission to others to sin because we refuse to put to death pet sins of our own. And what if, what if these weeks could be weeks of, "I'm done making excuses. I'm done justifying. It's sin. It's wrong. And if it's more important than God, and I can't give it up, it's wrong for me. Even if it's okay for somebody else, it's wrong. It's wrong for me. Pet sins. Your pet needs to die." Stop feeding it. Stop watering it. Stop taking care of it. Kill the sin. Kill the sin, right? Number three, how about this? The good left undone. Good undone. And this is uncommon. How many times have you said, God, there was so much good that you had for me today to do, and I didn't do it. If you know that it's right and you don't do it, it's sin, James tells us. If you if you see the thing that's right to do and you make an excuse and you turn your back and you justify it, he it says it's wrong. The good that you are about to do is just getting started as you leave, and there's good to be done all week long. And what if the majority of the good you do it has nothing to do with being in a church building? It has to do with being moved with compassion on mission for God as you hit the streets. How about this? Number four, people pleasing. People pleasing. I don't know if you can fit that all on one line, but how many times have you been in prayer and you just said, God, forgive me for fearing them instead of fearing you? Forgive me for changing my behavior and my attitude, what I talked about around certain people because I'm scared to death of them not accepting me. I'm scared of them rejecting me. I want to just fit in. And so I will be a chameleon and I'm willing to adapt wherever I am to make sure that I'm never rejected and I'm never hurt. And I just go with the flow because it's too uncomfortable to actually take a stand and do what's right for God, even if it means that I'm rejected, persecuted people pleasing. So if you don't know if you're a people pleaser, all you have to do is you have to ask somebody that's close to you and say, do I act differently around different people? And the majority of people will go, uh, yeah, I don't know who you're pretending to be at church, but like, that is not who you are at home. That is not who you are in the car. That's not, we listen to this music. And then why is it that when you get to choose your music, it's like Jesus here, Satan there, like who, who are you trying to please? Right? When you're at work, you talk a certain way. And then when you're around Christian friends, you talk a different way. People pleasing, people pleasing, people pleasing. Do you like me? Do you accept me? If you're already accepted in Jesus, you don't have to be concerned about being rejected by any human being. It's a glorious freedom, but do we confess it? God, don't allow me to continue pleasing people. How about number five? Here's a confession point. Godless solutions, godless solutions. How often do we say, I'll solve it, I'll do it, I'll take care of it and we never once pause and, God, help me solve this issue. I want your wisdom. I don't want to do it my way. I don't want to do what's right in my own eyes. Do we recognize that God is waiting for us to ask for his wisdom, for his help, for his resources? The issue is we just keep saying, God, I got it. I got it. I'll got. i take care of it. I'll take care of it. But then if it gets really, 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 every say really, really hard, then it's like, okay, God, I exhausted all of my resources and I don't have any solutions. God's like, come to me first. Come to me first, not last. Come to me first. Ask God for help at the beginning, not the end. Ask God for his perspective about how to make decisions at the start, not when it's falling apart. Agreed? Godless. It's godless. I'll solve it. I'll do it. How about this? Lastly, this is what we see from Nehemiah. For months and months, he didn't just weep and grieve and pray and fast over his own sin. What do we see? He prayed for Israel. He says, "I'm praying before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants." Verse six. You see, that? verse seven. I'm, I'm praying. I'm praying for them. It's a we, not just me. When's the last time you didn't just say, "God help me, God help me, help help me, and and more of me and more of me instead." God, would you help us? Would you help us as a church, as a small group? Would you help us around the table? Would you would you help us as, as we gather in groups on Wednesday nights? Would you help us on Sunday that we, that we, that we would be light, that we would be salt, that we would make an impact? It's not just me. It's we. It's we. Everybody say it's we. It's we. This is a a we thing, not just a me thing. And so number three, if you're taking notes, write this down. Compassion. Return quickly. Quickly. Everybody say Quickly. Quickly. Quickly with a confident mind. I know some of you are saying, no, no, quickly end this message. It's about time. All right, we're almost there. We're almost there, all right? Return quickly with a confident mind. Verses eight and nine. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. What what did he say? If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there, I will gather them. I'm gonna bring them into the place that I have chosen to make my name, to make my presence. Somebody say presence. My, my presence dwell there. Isn't that awesome? Even though everybody's scattered, even though there's a history of exile, even though they are being corrected, right? And they're being disciplined and they're scattered everywhere. He said, I'm gonna bring you back home. And he said that to Moses. And he's saying that in his prayer, again, Nehemiah is saying, God, bring him back. Bring them back. Return back to your your presence. Bring your people back. And God is a covenant making, covenant keeping God. At any point in history, we might see, it doesn't look like God is, is really following through on his promises. Because like everything's a mess, right? Like God's people are supposed to be living one way, they're not. It looks like God is just like whooping them instead of loving them. And what's up with that? There's like the Old Testament, angry God. And I, I like Jesus, right? Like long hair, flowing hair, cuddling with lambs. Like, what's up with this Old Testament God? Well, guess what? He's the same. He's the same. There's a season for butt whooping. There's a season for returning and gathering home and saying, we're good again. We're restored. Our friendship, our relationship, it's back to the way it should be. That's what Nehemiah is praying for. We've gone through a season where we've been exiles. We've been cast out. God, bring your people back. Bring them and make them united. Make them one. Uh, Through seasons of discipline, God is saying, It's not always going to be like this. Come close, come home. It's not based on works. It's not based on trying to work off all of that that punishment because God doesn't punish his people. He corrects them, right? That Jesus was punished. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Jesus was punished on the cross so that you never will be. You'll never be punished. You'll never be punished. There may be a season of desert, of dryness. There may feel like, God, where are you? And you're distant. But that's why God says, if you draw close to me, I'm going to draw close to you. So this is what Nehemiah is doing. Return quickly with a confident mind, return back to God, because God is gathering his his people, regardless of how far you've wandered. You're never too far from God's grace. I I don't know how many times we need to hear that, that for some of us, I've gone too far. I've strayed too long. I've, I've wandered. Here's a question. As of this week, as of today, do you feel closer to God than you did a year ago? Or do you feel further, further away? Are you drawing, are you drawing to God in a way during this season that is unique, that is powerful? Or do you feel like week after week, month after month, I'm just kind of straying. I'm just kind of wandering. I'm just floating through And for others of us, we don't have a relationship with Jesus. So we've never felt close to God. It's always been works. It's always, I'm trying, I'm trying, trying to do the church thing, trying to do the Jesus thing, trying to do the Bible thing, trying to clean up my life. And I I wonder if today we just need to hear, Jesus put an end to the trying. Jesus tried and succeeded for you. Because we fail. Jesus never will. He never has. He, He successfully obeyed. And you never can do it. You can't obey perfectly. He obeyed perfectly that you can be in right relationship. You don't have to try hard and work more. Maybe today you'd say, I I need to start a relationship. I never had a close relationship. There's nothing to come back to. And today could be the day. You'd say, "I, I want that. I want to start that. But Nehemiah is saying, return. God, return your people together. Return us back to you. Verse 10, they are servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight. Everybody say delight. To delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Urgency, right? I need your help now and grant him. And could we say grant me, God, grant me mercy in the sight and the presence of, and we can fill in the blank, but Nehemiah here, is about to go to the king to make an appeal. King Artaxerxes, he's saying, give me favor, show mercy in this relationship as I'm about to enter in because I could be killed over making a request of saying no to the king that I serve and work for, Nehemiah is saying, I could be killed for this. He could chop my head off and say, how dare you? Am I not good enough? Am I not giving you enough? God, I need your help. I need favor in this situation with this person and what he's doing is he's remembering who he is, even though this is how it ends. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. He's saying, that's my job, but that's not my identity. That's what I'm doing for a living, but that's not who I am. He remembered who he was. So if you're if you're taking notes, remember your identity with a joyful, everybody say joyful, with a joyful mouth, with a joyful voice. Remember who you are, that it doesn't matter who you work for. It doesn't matter the situation you're in, that you remember that if you are a child of God, that, that identity, it trumps all situations, all relationships. Your identity makes all the difference. And here we, we have him say, I, I, I want to delight to fear your name, not to fear the boss, not to fear what the king can do to me, but I delight to fear my God. In Ezra 4, we, we see uh, kind of the, the uprising of, of King Artaxerxes, Uh, and he's going against Jerusalem in chapter four, and he's he's stopping all the construction. So imagine this, he's working under the king. The king is responsible for stopping the construction in Jerusalem. He doesn't like God's people Israel. He does not favor them. He is part of the problem in stopping the walls from being built. His kind of VP, his right-hand man, Nehemiah, is about to go and make a request and say, hey, I know you hate them, but actually I'm with them. And I know that you stopped the work, but what if I uh, quit serving you and I go start the work that you intentionally stopped? How do you think that's going to go? Humanly speaking, no bueno. This is going to end badly. God have mercy. Only a miracle is going to see any kind of progress with this project. He knew whose he was that he belonged to God. Warren Wiersbe says this, Nehemiah started with a burden for Jerusalem, but the burden was not the call. And he wept over the sad condition of the city, but his tears, his tears were not the call. It was as he prayed to God over the sad, sad condition of the city. But his his tears, it wasn't it. He sought divine help, that he received a call to leave his easy job, easy job, his cushy job in the kingdom and go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Because he knew God had called him. Nehemiah could boldly approach the king and enlist others. Don't you love that? The whole process, God is leading him in a certain direction. There is a compassion rising up in him. He's taking steps. And the call on God's life is coming through a season of prayer and of fasting. And I just ask, do you know who you do you know who you are? And do you know that the calling on your life is not what you prefer? It's not what you're comfortable with. If we see anything from Nehemiah, Nehemiah's a fool to leave the comforts of the kingdom and to go to a busted, broken down city with no guarantee of this thing even succeeding. But when compassion from God alone rises up inside of you and you see the need, you don't overanalyze, you don't overprocess this thing, you're not filled with anxiety and fear. Instead, you step out by faith Seeking God's face. I don't know what you need to seek the Lord over during this season, but what if God is getting ready for a breakthrough and it's not gonna happen by you trying to plan it out, trying to control and manipulate all of the moving parts, but it's by getting on your face, getting serious about this call to pray so that God's calling can come through times of prayer and fasting. So powerful. The outward crisis can paralyze you with fear. I don't know what your outward crisis is. I don't know what the crisis is coming up, But it can paralyze you with fear it can and for many of us we go yes that's what crisis does to me i'm paralyzed by fear outward crisis can infuriate you with injustice some of you might be there now so unfair and you are filled with anger and not compassion over the circumstances that you didn't choose and the path that you have to walk and the obstacles that are in your way that's an option you can respond that way the outward crisis can shift your blame on others If it wasn't for them, and if it wasn't for her, and if it wasn't for him, and if it wasn't for them, and I would be in a different place. And I would be happy, and I would be fulfilled, and I would be satisfied. We'd be so much further ahead. You you can spend your life blaming everything on everybody else. You can. That's an option. When crisis hits, it, it could be everybody else's fault. How about the outward crisis can drive you further inward, 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 inward towards selfish safety. I need to protect me. I need to look out for me. I need to make sure that that my family is controlled and, and that there's a fortress around them and we need to look out for ourselves. And if we don't look out, who's going to look out for us and who's going to protect us? If we don't plan it, we don't strategize it. Inward, 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 selfish, selfish, selfish. You can do that. I mean, that's, that's an option. Or, every say or, the outward crisis can compel you to inward ownership and upward hope. That's what Nehemiah would say to us is, Take that, take that last path. When you see the crisis, take ownership. When you see the crisis, find your hope upward, not inward, not outward, because we're not living for our own kingdom. We're living for God's kingdom. Let's, let's stand, and as we do, I just want to say this. If you belong to Jesus, you are his servant, and you are called. If you belong to Jesus, you are his servant. You are called. It's not for some. It's for all followers, I just want us to, to read some resolutions. What's next for me? What is God calling me to do next? Where am I headed? Can we say these together? And I, and I hope you can say this from, from your heart, right? Let's say these together. I will confess sin daily and ask about others' needs. What else? I choose a missional lifestyle of compassion. And lastly, I'm praying for a breakthrough. Would we commit to those things over these next weeks that we would say, this is the call on my life of God. It's not about me it's about others it's it's about looking up and finding my hope in the God that is over all